Our first reading is uh, from two texts in the New Testament, uh, uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, uh, Matthew 16, 6. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said to them, watch out and be aware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And our second reading this morning is taken from Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, uh, verse 33 through to verse 35. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables. Without a parable, he told them nothing. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth to speak in parables. I will proclaim what has been hidden from the foundation of the world. God of love, God of forgiveness, God of mercy, God of mystery, speak to our hearts this day. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. One of the most distinctive things about Jesus was that he taught using parables. From the evidence we have available to us from the ancient world, not many other teachers did this at the time, and not many do it today. It's quite a, quite a hard genre to master. But time after time, Jesus told short stories that packed a punch. Certainly, Jesus wasn't absolutely the first person to teach using parables and stories. There are both Greek and Semitic examples from before his time, but there is no evidence of anyone prior to Jesus using parables as consistently, creatively, and effectively as he did he kind of reinvented the genre of teaching in parables. One of P.G. Woodhouse's characters says, a parable is one of those stories in the Bible which sounds at first like a pleasant yarn but keeps something up its sleeve which pops up and leaves you flat. Um, Helen, 
I'm really sorry, I forgot to put the cue for that one on the script. I think that might be the first, there we go. That was my error, not Helen's. Uh, but yeah, there we go. A parable is one of those stories in the Bible which sounds at first like a pleasant yarn, but keeps something up its sleeve which pops up and leaves you flat. Uh, they didn't teach me that definition of parables when I was a kid in Sunday school. Uh, I don't know if you remember being given the slightly cliched Sunday school definition of a parable as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Did anybody else get taught that one? Yeah. Certainly, when I was growing up in church, the parables, well, some of them at least, were presented to us as the stories that are suitable for the children. These days, I have to say I'm not so sure I think the parables aren't nearly as warm and fuzzy as they have sometimes been portrayed as being. Rather than being short and simplistic stories with two levels of meaning, you know, one earthly and one heavenly, parables are actually more complicated. And Jesus' parables are both works of art but also weapons that he used in his conflict with his opponents. The parables that Jesus told were always an invitation to see the world differently. And they typically had the effect of polarising those who heard them. Either you entered into the new world that the parable created, or you didn't. And if you did... You found yourself living the new reality of the kingdom of heaven, where love overcomes evil, where the least and the last find themselves valued as never before, and where peace defeats violence. But if you didn't, you found yourself trapped in a world where power was allied to status and outworks as oppression where your heart is hardened as you get drawn even further into destructive patterns of living that the world demands. These are not merely stories to enjoy. Rather, they are told to hold up one reality as a mirror of another. And the world that the story reveals is the world of the kingdom of heaven. Parables are avenues to understanding. They're handles by which one can grasp the kingdom. And Jesus told his parables to confront people with the character of God's kingdom. And then to invite them to participate in it. And then to live in accordance with it. Last month, when our communion series for this year had us looking at the parable of the mustard seed, I issued a challenge to see if you wanted to write a parable, taking something from the world around and then using it to shed light on some aspect of the kingdom of heaven. And I'm really grateful that a number of us took the opportunity to do this, and some of you shared your parables with me. And I thought I'd take a moment now, this week, to reflect back and hear some of these Bloomsbury parables. Maybe you'll recognise yours. The kingdom of heaven is like a strand of DNA, so tiny 
Only electron microscopes can see it, but it gives shape to all the glories of nature, from the eye to the brain, from the rose to the mighty oak. The kingdom of heaven is like a beautiful birthday cake, which can only bring true joy once it has been broken into pieces. The kingdom of heaven is like a light. It is hope that shines in the darkness. The kingdom of heaven is like the transistor which lies at the heart of all modern electronic devices. The kingdom of heaven is like swimming a mile. The only way to do it is one length at a time. The kingdom of heaven is like the New Year's Eve feast prepared by my non-Christian friend for her elderly, lonely, and difficult neighbours. The kingdom of heaven is like a rainbow, reminding us of the eternal promises of God. The kingdom of heaven is like a picnic. Once the food is dispersed, a happy, satisfied group of people remain. The kingdom of heaven is like the electron. A tiny, tiny particle buffeted about in all matter, but it bears a charge, and as it joins with other electrons, it imparts terrific power that can do so much. The kingdom of heaven is like this. A theatre was putting on a wonderful production. Everyone would enjoy it, and the standing ovation would be rapturous. Some people heard about the production early and quickly bought their seats in the stalls. Some people could not afford the best seats and instead bought cheap seats on benches up in the gods. Some people then left it until the last minute and bought reduced price tickets at the door. When the performance was due to start, the stalls were not all full. So those with the cheap seats were moved down to the stalls alongside the rich and the cultured. The show was magnificent, but those who had bought their tickets early tuttered and spent the performance composing in their heads letters of complaint to the management about how unfair it all was. <laughs> And so we come today to the parable of the yeast or leaven. And I wonder what challenge we will hear in this short and subversive story. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast a woman took and mixed it with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. As is always the case when we come to the Bible, it's worth paying some attention to the cultural background of what we read there. Whilst human nature hasn't changed, the world in which we live is very different from the world of the first century. And we need to be always alert to the error of thinking things that are obvious to us were obvious back then, and indeed vice versa. And the first thing we need to tease out here is the difference between yeast and leaven. I don't know if you've ever baked bread at home. Uh, we do occasionally with the help of a bread maker. But if you have, you've probably bought those little packets of dried yeast, which is activated by moisture as you knead it into the dough. Because we have microscopes and science, we know that yeast are single-celled microorganisms that are classified along with molds and mushrooms as part of the fungi family. 
And we know that it causes the bread to rise by converting the fermentable sugars present in the dough into carbon dioxide and ethanol. It won't surprise you to know that those living in the ancient Near East of the first century didn't know this. They just knew that if you took a lump of dough from the last batch and added it to the new one and kneaded it through, it would cause the dough to rise when it was baked and that it was probably a good idea to take a lump of that one out and put it on one side for the next batch before you baked it. And this, this lump of dough that went from you know, one batch to the next was known as the leaven. It's more similar to the modern friendship or Herman cake, if you've ever had one of those, you know, where you pass a portion of the uncooked dough to a friend and they use it to activate their cake before passing a portion of it on again. I did actually spend some time looking at the history of how did this start in the first place? Did you like who, who cooked meat for the first time and thought that was a good idea? Who first discovered this? And it may have been that it was discovered by accident or it may have been that they were brewing and they had some of the active ingredient from beer and they just added that to some dough. And so we, we don't really know how it started. But once it started, you've got to keep it going. So the ancient Greek word for yeast is the same as the Greek word for leaven. And it refers to this lump of fermenting dough, which keeps the process going from one batch of baking to the next. The next thing we need to realise is that in the Jewish culture of the time of Jesus, leaven is not always a positive image. The, orin the origins of this negativity towards leavened bread come from some regulations in the Hebrew Bible regarding the preparation of the Passover meal, which required that people would eat only unleavened bread for the week leading up to the Passover meal. The idea here was probably that when the Pharaoh freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, it was believed they left in such a hurry that they couldn't wait for their bread dough to rise and that in commemoration of this, for the duration of the Passover, which remembered the freeing of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, uh, they were to not eat any leavened bread. Not entirely clear that's the origin, but it might be. Symbolically speaking, then, whilst leavened bread certainly tastes nicer than unleavened bread, it also came to symbolise being overly settled, too much at ease in the world, being unready to drop everything and follow the call of God. I can't go, my bread's not risen. And we saw in our first readings that Jesus also uses the image of leaven negatively when he's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. And the point he is making is that they speak words which sound very attractive, but which are actually working against the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming. The thing is, whilst they might not have had an understanding of microbiology, the ancient people of Jesus' time knew that yeast was an infection. You only needed a small amount of it for it to quickly spread through the whole batch of the dough. And that once the dough has been leavened, there's no going back. You can't get unleavened bread from leavened dough. 
So whilst it might be fine to add yeast to your dough to make it taste nice, the dangers of becoming too settled to follow God's call or of being infected with a virulent ideology were also there in the background to Jesus' parable. See, I don't think this is a nice parable. I think it's one of those which packs a punch and is designed to shock. And I wonder if one way of getting our heads around this might be to play with a few more parables that might illustrate what Jesus is trying to do here. How about this? The kingdom of heaven is like a virus which spreads throughout the body and against which even antivirals don't work. The kingdom of heaven is like compound interest, which makes millionaires out of thin air. The kingdom of heaven is like rust, which can eat away even the strongest iron. In other words, like leaven in dough, the kingdom of heaven is unstoppable. It increases exponentially. And it fundamentally changes the nature of everything it encounters. You see, I think if you'd asked the scribes and the Pharisees to come up with a parable of the kingdom using the imagery of bread, they would have said to you, the kingdom of heaven is like unleavened bread. Bread infected by Yeast might be fine for everyday eating, but it's profane, it's commonplace. It is, quite literally, not kosher. And if you want to be holy, like at Passover, you must leave the leaven out. This is because adding leaven messes things up. It changes things, it alters them. And the scribes and the Pharisees would have been the first to say that the path to holiness is found in taking things back to basics. Leave out the leaven, discard the infection, get back to purity and holiness. I have a suspicion they might also have added, let's make Israel great again. So when Jesus comes along, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who needs leaven through the flour until there's enough risen bread to feed a village, it's a deeply subversive image because Jesus is saying to those who have ears to hear that the kingdom is found in things that are everyday, in things that are unholy, in things that are profane. Whilst the scribes and the Pharisees got upset about Jesus taking a meal with tax collectors and sinners, this parable is about the kingdom embracing everyone, the unholy, the unworthy, and the unexpected. The scribes and the Pharisees would have said that Jesus was infecting the holy community as leaven infected bread. But Jesus said that their ideology of purity and exclusion was the real infection. And that the mixing in of the outcast and the sinner was what made the kingdom come to life. You see, Jesus' parable is about bringing the margins to the centre. It's about taking the little bit of leftover from the last time and kneading it in until it's thoroughly part of the whole thing. 
It's about taking those whom the scribes and the Pharisees would cast aside and mixing them in, transforming both them and the kingdom in the process. For yeast to be successful, it has to be kneaded into the batch. It has to spread throughout to infect the bread and transform it into something else. And there is a real challenge here for those of us who might already find ourselves on the inside, so to speak, of the kingdom of heaven. How can we avoid becoming like the scribes and the Pharisees, mentally excluding those whom we think will mess up our holiness and our purity? If I think back a couple of weeks ago to Pride Saturday here in London, to the group of angry Christians standing beside the pride parade, telling people that they were going to go to hell because of their sexuality, telling me that I was going to go to hell, I became ever more convinced that those of us who go and stand in front of them offering messages of love and acceptance and welcome to people who have been excluded from church after church. Well, I think that takes us closer to the kingdom than some might think. But we still need to guard ourselves, which is why our monthly series on inclusion, building on our registration as an inclusive church congregation, invites us to consider not just sexuality, but also gender and disability and poverty and mental health and ethnicity as markers of exclusion that we need to be alert to. And we must never become complacent in our assumption that we are already embodying the kingdom in its fullness, because that way lies the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. Rather, we need to always remember that yeast is an agitator. It mixes things up. And in Jesus' parable, it thrusts the holy and the profane together because in that mixture is found the kingdom of God. And like leaven, Jesus was an agitator. Nothing and no one touched by Jesus remained the same. His ministry was always one of radical transformation, of finding the holy in the most unexpected of places. And this parable asks us to look for the kingdom in surprising places, to seek the kingdom in the mundane, to search for the kingdom even where we would never expect to find it, even, dare I say it, in those places we would consider unholy. And we see this time and again in the ministry of Jesus as he called people to follow him who you just wouldn't expect. And he didn't expect them to follow on the margins. He didn't say, you're welcome this far, but no further. There was no language of welcoming but not affirming. Rather, the unholy became his inner circle. And churches can run the risk of becoming the kinds of places that know what is holy and good. 
And then because we're open and inclusive, we're the kind of people who allow others to join us. Even people who don't fit our understanding of what a good Christian looks like. But do we then allow them to become a part of us? To integrate? To mix in? To leaven us and to transform us into something different? The risk, of course, is that we might not be quite as obviously holy as we were before. But that might not be a bad thing, because we might find we end up looking a lot more like the kingdom of God than we did before. But the bread that needs the leaven is not just our church communities. It's good to think about that on an anniversary Sunday. But what if we think of ourselves individually as the bread here? What if we allow ourselves, me, you, to become infected? What if we invite the virus of the kingdom of heaven into our lives? This is a tough challenge, because I don't know about you, but as a Christian of many years, I've heard a lot of sermons telling me to keep myself pure and holy. I've put a lot of effort into learning to resist sin and in repenting when I fail. Many of us will have been conditioned to expect that our lives, if we live them rightly, will be analogous to the unleavened bread of the Passover. That with enough prayer and holiness, we can be pure and free from sin's alloy, as the old Christmas carol puts it. But that way, of course, lies the path of the scribes and the Pharisees, who invested so much in ensuring that their lives were pure and holy in ways that the lives of others weren't. And here we may just need to be honest about our sin. And we may need to stop kidding ourselves that any of us have or ever can attain purity or holiness by our own efforts. Because once we've acknowledged this, we are ready to receive the infection of the kingdom of heaven, which takes all of our aspirations, all of our dreams, all of our hopes for purity and goodness, and it messes with them. And it pounds them. And it takes us into places we never thought we would go, transforming us irrevocably in the process. Now, don't hear me wrong here. I am not saying that sin doesn't matter. We all know that there are infections which are destructive. We can become infected by bad teaching or destructive theology. We can become infected with gossip and hatred. And these things destroy individuals and communities. But there are infections that change us for good. Think of the viruses used now to deliver cancer treatment. We need to learn to recognize and resist the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees who would cast out all those unworthy of the kingdom in their single-minded pursuit of holy living. And we need to learn to welcome the infective yeast of the outcast and the sinner which infects us for good. We need to look for the kingdom in the good yeast that makes itself known in unexpected places. And then 
we become part of spreading the contagion that is the glory of the kingdom. It spreads in us and it spreads through us. We might look around and think, ah, church could be more full. But if it starts here, there is no stopping it. You can't wind back the clock on leavened dough. In a moment, we're going to be sharing communion in memory of the Passover meal that Jesus ate with his disciples on the night before he was crucified. And the bread we share is not the Passover unleavened bread. It is bread that has been leavened. It's made for us by Anne. If we were a slightly different tradition, we'd also be drinking fermented wine, but, you know, alas. We do not keep the kingdom to ourselves. We take it into us and we pass it on. We will be serving one another bread and wine. We are literally passing the yeast of the leavened dough of the kingdom of God from hand to hand and then we take it into ourselves and we take it out into the world. And in so doing, we must recognise that no one is any more important than any other, and that at the table of Christ, all are welcome. Lord, we come before you this morning, small, tired, broken. Lord, we come before you this morning perhaps preoccupied, Concerned, worrying about the weak. Lord, perhaps we come before you this morning with joyful hearts, excited hearts, full of anticipation. But Lord, we come before you this morning. Lord, help us to be the yeast in this world. We look around us and there is so much happening. We don't know where to direct our attention. Yet we can be grateful that you hear our prayers and that you are active. We lift our voices in concern for the environment, for high temperatures in Alaska and the increasing destruction to the rainforest in Brazil. But we also celebrate those small steps. Local councils declaring climate crises. And New Zealand increasing its effort to eradicate invasive plant and animal species that threaten the extinction of the most native ecology. Lord, we look around us, yet we know you hear our prayers. We could look around us with grief for the suffering that's happening in Yemen, with raising tensions between us and Iran, from children being separated from their parents in China and in America. And we mourn as we learn of mass graves of migrants in Texas. 
Yet we celebrate that those people yesterday would go out and they will protest. We celebrate Extinction Rebellion as they stand up and are a voice to power of challenge. Remember how we, as a community, support individuals amongst us that face immigration injustices. And we lift our prayers to you. Lord, we think of those in our community that are not well this morning, that are not with us. But remember that as we take our communion, that we are still taking it with them. And with all those who have shared in this meal before us, and all those that will share in it again. That we are like yeast. We spread far. We are connected to those that can't be here today. And we hold them in our hearts and lift them to you now. Lord, we repent of the ways in which we have not shown your love. We repent of the ways in which we have excluded others practically or even in our hearts and minds. Lord, teach us how to be better vaccines for the hatred in this world. Show us how to love in the abundant way that you love. Lord, be with us this week as we go from this place to our separate lives. Walk with us. Remind us that we are connected, that we are used in this world, and we have the power to change it. Amen.